it's a great pleasure uh, that Nick has given up of his time this evening. Uh, he joins us from, uh, from Hertfordshire uh, on his family farm um, and brings us the experience that he's had from a lifetime, particularly as director of the EU and Exit uh, International Trade for National with NFU, uh, which he's, he's run since 2017. And, and Nick, I'm guessing that not even you knew we'd have such an extraordinary and rocky ride um, over the last three years to where we are uh, now, uh, post-Brexit, finally, what a long and extraordinary period of time, but you navigated a remarkable period, um, and the NFU uh, has never been more emboldened, I suspect, really, or given more uh, significance to its members in terms of direction. Uh, it's a hugely difficult and interesting time. So I thought this evening, um, everybody, what we would do is to um, really just hear it um, straight from someone who's been at the coalface of the transition from CAP into the uh, ELM um, to put together some of the facts and the ideas, framework it for your thoughts and consideration. And obviously the background to all this is the series of talks that we've uh, enjoyed about what we are calling active environmentalism. So it's really how the transition um, in this way has begun to bring the environment. And I think I'm right to say that is under the uh, policy of um, for public good um, is, in fact, I noticed that it's public goods, plural, which I want to talk about with Nick uh, later on, um, and how that has brought itself up the scale. Um, and it's a lovely concept, um, but is it a lovely reality? Um, Nick, I suspect you more than anybody will be able to help us with that. So thank you for joining us. Great. Thank, well, thank you very much for, for having me, Johnny. Um, and yeah, you're, you're, you're right. Um, it's been a sort of long trudge over the last four and a half years to get where we were and actually very frustrating because there's been all these conversations about uh you know how we having taken back control what we do with that control particularly around agriculture and environmentalism and where those two things meet but it hasn't really moved on very much in that four and a half years it was quite interesting actually when i when i uh took on the role with the nfu a few months after the referendum, they created a, a team to look after everything that came out of Brexit. Um, and the debate then was when uh, uh, Theresa May was going to trigger the, trigger the Article 50 mechanism, which would set two-year clock running. So everyone was thinking in terms of two years. Uh, and lots of people said to me at the time, well, that's a bit of a stupid move by you. You've only got a job for two years. Um, and I sort of ruefully smiled and said, I think it's going to be a bit longer than that. And uh, <laughs> I think it's going to be... Uh, a lot longer than, than that. This uh, this sort of um, some of the issues arising, are, I think, are, are going to be never ending. But look, I wanted to, um, as you said, just sort of talk a bit about the current policy environment for land management and agriculture in the UK, in particular England. I think it's an important point we sometimes miss is agriculture is a devolved issue. And actually, the policy approach will be different in the devolved nations. And when we're talking about elms and public money for public goods, it actually, that is an English policy. Uh, and Wales, Scotland and Ulster may do something similar, but they may do something uh, something different. Um, but we, we have this sort of, we're at this junction now, I guess, where uh, we're deciding what to do with, uh, with our newfound uh, uh, sovereignty when it comes to policy. But before I dive into that and I also want to talk a bit about trade policy because that is really important has a really big impact often overlooked 
on how we look after the, the, the land and produce our food. Um, but before we do that, I thought it'd be useful sort of to take a step back and think a little bit about the, the junction, the, the, the nexus between farming and environmentalism and mm. looking after the land. Um, because actually it's important that we think about the context of this. Um, in particular, I think there's sort of two, two important questions we just need to make sure we're answering, which is, does the land need to be farmed at all? Actually, we've sometimes got great visions for biodiversity, wildlife, the environment, etc. Why not just, just pursue those? Do you know, what, what, why, why, why should farming come into it at all? Secondly, who's responsible for, for achieving some of these, these visions and, and these aims? Yeah. So I won't surprise you, you know, coming from where I am, both as a farmer and working with the NFU, that uh, I do think it's important that the land is used for producing food. Um, globally, we have a growing global population who need to be fed. It's interesting, I was born in the mid 70s. Back then, the global population was about 4 billion. It's now almost 8 billion. So in the course of my life, the amount of people on Earth has doubled in that short time, in that short time frame. In fact, if you go back just 100 years, there was less than 2 billion people on the planet. It's quadrupled in 100 years and is predicted to continue to rise. So we're nearly at 8 billion now. It's expected that we're almost approaching 10 billion by 2050 and possibly 11 billion uh, at the end of the century. At which point, as you say, it begins to, to tail off and, and probably come down. But that's an awful lot of, uh, of mouths uh, to, to feed. It actually, this, I think it's more amazing if you look at it on a daily increase basis, which is 220,000 more people on planet Earth every day. That's a town the size of, of Luton. It's to, every day. 220,000 people. I mean, we look at these awful statistics and they are awful around the pandemic at the moment and almost two and a half million people have, have now died globally from, from coronavirus, which is a, 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 obviously a tragedy. But that amount is replenished in less than two weeks on the, on the current global population rises. So this is a massive challenge, how we, we, how we feed, feed people. Um, and it's a difficult challenge. And that's why there is this tension, I think, between the environment, looking after our landscapes, looking after wildlife, um, but recognising you've got to, to, to produce food as well to feed a growing, uh, growing global population. Now, it's not just about producing food, is it? I mean, we've got to do better at reducing waste, much too much waste. We've got to be better at distributing food around the world, although that's not easy. But we know there are some parts of the world, us included, where we've got lots of food. We eat too many calories, probably. Uh, and there are other parts who, who, who don't. That's so you've got to yeah. balance, balance, balance that out a little bit. There's obviously lots of discussion about adapting diets to make those more sustainable. Again, very tricky. You've got China, for example, massive increasing middle class there who want to start eating more meat and uh, don't take very kindly to the West who've done that for hundreds of years, telling them actually they need to move to, to plant-based diets. So, um, you know, maybe a nice idea, but it's going to be very difficult to, 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 to meet in practice. So ultimately, the, the, the food production bit is going to remain uh, important. Certainly with the population exploding, I don't think we should be moving to a situation where 
we are producing less food. What we've got to do is actually be more efficient about the way we produce that food. So impact less on the environment in the way we do it. Exactly. So I think there's strong, strong, important arguments there why we need to be producing food on the land um, and why there is a tension between looking after the land and producing food. It's not a tension that's unresolvable, but it's a tension uh, none, nonetheless. Now, we kind of bring that back to the UK. There is an argument, in fact, this was an argument that was espoused by politicians sort of 20 odd years ago that we didn't really need to worry about farming and producing food in the UK. Uh, fine, people needed to eat, but actually we're a rich country, we can import we can import food and that's what we can do and in a way that's quite an attractive option you go well if that's the case then we can manage the landscape and the environment in the way that we want without having to worry too much about about farming but i think there are lots of problems with that with that argument um firstly food security i think it's quite important as a country and this is we've been reminded of this quite a lot in the last year uh with the pandemic but it's important that we can produce at least a proportion, a decent proportion of the food food that we eat. Uh, mm. Not all of the food we eat. I think that would you don't want to go too far. That would be silly as well. You need a, a balance um, so that you don't come a cropper. But you need to have a pretty sufficient uh, amount of production on your own shores to ensure you've got good position in food security and you can meet your requirements for for food. Then you've got issues around sustainability, like air miles. Do we want to be flying food? Uh, across the globe uh, to feed us generally no I think we want to be eating as locally as we can although again can be a complicated issue it's not as simple as food flown over here has a higher environmental footprint sometimes uh, it doesn't especially if you're using for example greenhouses or, or the like in the UK to grow certain vegetables so mm -hmm. it's not open and shut that but generally um, all things being equal it's obviously better to be producing and eating uh, uh, locally. Um, the case for security and standards, I suspect, isn't it, in terms yeah. of an argument for uh, um, justifying food production in the UK and on the landscape. I think that's so interesting, arguably yeah. potentially an argument about doing it better, I suppose. And do we, do we, are we, are we a, sort of a leading capacity in that, in that area or, or where do we sort of figure on that spectrum? In terms of Domestic our ability to food. produce, I suppose, as you're itemising, you know, we, you know, I think really well describing the reasons why we shouldn't be unrealistic about our aspirations for putting large parts of the landscape to mm. uh, flora and fauna, um, just for the sort of esoteric sense of it. But you know, farming has this real necessity. Uh, so, it obviously is a question that's been addressed. Is now is well, can we do it but better? And what is this, you know, this tension point? I'd love to return to that uh, with you in a moment as well. Yeah, I mean, so this is this is exactly the question. If you if you are satisfied that you've you've got um, a good justification for producing food on on your own shores, and I think there are there are a couple of other important issues actually, like for example, the ethical aspect of requiring developing countries, for example, to feed the developing world. I'm deeply uncomfortable with that notion. I think we should be doing what we can to feed ourselves, not requiring places around countries around the world that are increasingly struggling actually to produce food with climate change, etc., relying on them. Interestingly enough, actually, the UK is a very good place to produce food. 
globally. It's mm. a maritime climate, temperate, great place for producing grass, yeah. uh, very good in some parts of the country for producing crops. I mean, our yields are world beating. Um, and uh, you know, it is, if you kind of picked a few places around the globe, you know, Northwest Europe, Britain would be up there as, as some of the, the best places to, to produce food. So it seems to me that it would be, it's totally wrong in that situation to then pass up that opportunity and then instead expect other countries around the world to, to, to produce the food for us. We should be producing a degree, good degree of the food that, that, mm. that we eat. But of course, we know that that then has the potential to have, uh, to have an impact. This is a, I guess a question in that case of how really, isn't it? So that's, yeah. this must be at the forefront of the farming industry's mind, I guess, how and at what price? Yeah. So this sort of brings you then to the current kind of policy environment. And I think mm -hmm. there are, there are two, there are two important policy areas that um, that interact here and you have to get right together. And I'm talking about policy environment. It is of course beholden on us as individuals or individual farm businesses or uh, you know, the, the broader food industry as well to take responsibility for, for this as well. I'm not saying, certainly not that you know, this is government needs to, to sort this out, but policy is really important, particularly when you've got a food system in the UK, which is very good at providing cheap food. In fact, uh, only Singapore and the US pay less for their food as a proportion of their income. Food in the UK is very cheap. Now, that doesn't, that's not to say there are not families out there, people out there who struggle to afford uh, uh, food and struggle to eat well. Clearly they do. But that's not really an issue with the way food is priced in the UK. That is about incomes and poverty and austerity. Um, what we have here is a, is a food system which is really built around providing cheap food so food is cheap farmers margins are pretty slim as many people i'm sure will, will, will know anybody who's involved in farming knows that it's not um uh, a gravy train uh, at all and there are people in the middle who are uh, probably making a bit more a bit more money but what what this means is that um you know it, it would be lovely and a lot of people say well all we need to do is to make people pay more for their food you know and then you know actually what is the real price of food and that that's the way to kind of solve this you you pay farmers properly for the food consumers pay uh, a proper price for their food and then farmers can farm to higher standards they can they can uh, uh, shoulder the costs of of more sustainable production etc but in truth that is going to be almost impossible i think to 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 implement so, yeah, how do you persuade people to to pay more yeah and i was going to say so do you think farmers would farm in more you know in uh, in those ways more environmental ways if they if they if the money was there to justify it you're saying that instinctively they would well I, absolutely i mean you know they 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 produce for for the market but ultimately farmers are tend to be price takers rather than price makers it's the the structural nature of the of the business especially if you've got to shift your your produce pretty pretty quickly um so you know that that is that is i think part and parcel of farming but the point you you know the question there is is right which is the need for farmers to 
for them to be a business for there to be a business case for them essentially to farm in a certain way and this is where we then come into to the policy to the policy bit so yeah. you've got two you've got two kind of areas at the moment which which interact first you've got what we call domestic agricultural policy so farm subsidies farm support however you want to term it but what's replacing the cap and what are farmers paid to uh, to do uh, yeah. uh, secondly and must decide to this there's our broader trade policy what is the environment in which you're asking those farmers to to actually compete in a business in a business sense and you have to be very careful here because there is a risk that what we what we've got coming down the line is an agricultural policy a domestic policy that incentivizes and rewards farmers for high levels of production alongside a potentially quite high regulatory um, baseline, high, higher standards being imposed, which make it just more costly, more expensive for farmers to produce food. Now, they might get rewarded for, for that sufficiently, or they might not. It really depends on how much money government is willing to put into that system. But if you do that, if you are asking farmers to wear more costs in producing food, and the market isn't rewarding them. As I said, it's going to be very difficult to persuade the market to uh, to pay more. Yes, for some of us, we might be comfortable going and paying that little bit extra for organic, that little bit extra for free range, etc. I'm afraid the data shows that 90% plus of the UK population primarily buys on price. You know, they mm -hmm. buy, and that's under, and that's understandable. You know, budgets are tight, but you you've got that on the one hand. On the other hand, if you are also liberalising trade, doing trade deals with countries like Australia, US, New Zealand, very impressive, efficient agricultural producers and exporters, and you are encouraging ex imports from those countries into the UK market, where they will compete pretty effectively with UK producers, you've got, a, you've got two policies there which don't meet up at all. You're, you've got a domestic policy pushing in one direction, a trade policy pushing another. You're asking farmers to find ways of competing on price, producing at a lower cost, but your domestic policy is asking them to take on extra costs. And this is, this is a very real risk. This is sort of potential of where we are going with our agricultural policy on one mm. hand and our, and our trade policy on the other. And what does that mean for how we look after the environment, how we look after the landscape? Well, it could mean a number of things. Firstly, you run the risk of undermining farming here so that actually you basically just reduce the amount of food that we're producing in the UK. What that then means is who's looking after the land if it's no longer farmed. You're going to have to pay armies of civil servants to, to manage it. And remember that actually you know, at least 37% of the land is tenanted. So there's a huge amount which is, uh, which is not you know, owner occupied, not, it's not managed by the landowner. And indeed, even for most farmers, you know, they don't have sort of spare cash, um, disposable income to make losses on, on, on farming and still, you know, put money into. Exactly. So you've got, you've got your, your challenge there. You then also got the bigger issue, which is you, you end up just exporting your, your food consumption. You're actually relying more on food produced overseas where you don't have any control on the standards that that food is produced in. 
So you might be saying here, let's develop a policy that, that improves animal welfare, improves environmental protection, pays farmers to deliver public goods. But actually, if you've got less farmers doing that, you're going to be importing food where none of that applies necessarily, unless the governments of those countries are doing the same thing. But that's completely out of out of our hands. So you're actually you're actually sort of almost incentivizing um, lower standard uh, lower standard production, and that that you know is is a is a genuine problem. Now the government will say that is not what we're what we're doing. Um, don't worry, and as as they have said for for the last few years, don't worry. We're going to have this wonderful new environmental land management scheme, um, but at the same time we're going to do trade deals, but we won't let that undermine our farming. In practice, that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to do if you want to do both those things. I think you, you, you're, you're right in the sense that if you're negotiating trade deals, um, things will be are on the table. Um, and until those trade deals are settled, then options are, are open. You can't say with certainty where you stand. Um, and I do accept me. So I framework your summation as being the concern with potential double standards of imports coming in against the, uh, our own production, which is notionally, I would suggest, slightly higher in the cost per unit um, compared to other competitors, uh, even though, as you say, as a country, we've got the capacity to pay slightly more. Um, so it's an interesting um, sort of dilemma. And I'm, I think I'm right that the ELM is still out for tender, I suppose, if that's the right phraseology for seven years worth of thrashing around in the way that you're describing. Um, uh, but I, I wanted to just, I suppose, because it's, it's an easy document to start with, it's a devil when you get into detail, because its concept, broadly speaking, I think is that uh, money will be available, not just for management of land, but actually management of land in an environmentally secure way. So um, I guess this is all still new territory, but potentially it opens up avenues for farming which may not have been there before. Um, I was thinking in particular of things like carbon, which is something that we're now very aware that, uh, to quote Bill Gates, there's only two numbers in the room, one is 51 billion and one is zero. And so somehow we've got to put all that back in the ground. Now farming might have a very big role to play yeah. in, in that. I was yeah. wondering. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, to, to sort of start at the beginning, I guess, you, we, we, we've had just last year, what's called the Agriculture Act, which is the, the legislation that's, that paves the way for this kind of new revolution in, in farming in, in the UK. And so that basically sets out in law that the government can pay farmers, provide financial assistance to farmers for delivering public goods. It's it's fairly broad framework. It's what we call an enabling bill, not much in it, but it provides that legal framework. So public goods are essentially anything that the, uh, the market won't deliver itself. So it is things like um, uh, you know, biodiversity gain. Um, it could be things like blood alleviation schemes, for example, um, certainly um, carbon mitigation or alleviation schemes, all sorts of things like this, renewable energy, some of those uh, bits will be, be within it. There are some things which are kind of grey area, like soil, really important issue, soil health, soil quality, restoring, restoring that. 
because it's not in a sense not really a public good actually if you own your farm you you basically own the soil it's a resource and an asset for you to to, to use and you have an interest in making sure that it's productive nevertheless i think actually we generally see see it as being important to uh find ways of of incentivizing better soil management better soil health etc so all of this is kind of in the mix um and the government is now beginning to set out actually how these future schemes will work so at the moment we have the still have the sort of the, the, the back end of the old cap schemes which essentially are what we call direct payments farmers just receive uh payments on the basis of the land that they they farm those are being swept away over seven years as you say and in that seven year period the new system will come in now hopefully hopefully it will do as sort of what you've just described there john it will uh, uh incentivize and reward farmers for more sustainable models of production uh, and there's every reason it, it will do that but there's a few things it needs to get right firstly it needs to be resourced properly as we said you know the, this is livelihoods for farmers if if there's not enough money in it then they're not going to do it because they have to earn a living and actually what's the alternative well it might not be stuff we like you know they might just as i say be going then toe-to-toe -to -toe with those australian farmers and those us farmers there's many very good farms in australia and us by the way i'm not sort of denigrating but it's no, a different they are, they are efficient That's, yeah. it's a different type of farming and it would require our farmers to to to, to farm in a different way if they're going to compete against them but if there's not enough in the public schemes then then that may well be what they have to do so it needs to be sufficiently resourced and that's potentially going to require even more than the existing system mm. because at the moment it's essentially um uh, it's 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 money for the land you farm whereas this is going to be money for delivering something which is going to come at a cost so the farmer's going to have to wear additional costs to deliver these public goods it's going to have to get more than this the income it foregoes for, for doing that so it could be quite it could be quite costly yeah. secondly and i think this is really important it can't just be about environmental performance or public goods in isolation it has to be still about farming and food production and for the reasons that i set out at the at the beginning this is actually a great opportunity to you know we've all got in our head a sort of vision of actually how farming can be more sustainable more 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 environmental more higher welfare etc but if you forget the food production bit then you're going to miss that opportunity and you might encourage some landowners to manage their you know estates their and their farms in very nice ways but regardless of whether they're producing food or not and if we're gonna that as i said has problems that we just may stop as a country producing enough food which is a problem in its own right but also you may incentivize some farmers to go completely the opposite way and just chase production so actually what you want to do here is find ways of saying these are more sustainable practices and to give the government their due you know that is the language they're talking in as well they, yeah. they are recognizing that but it's not it's not necessarily easy it's not it's not a straightforward thing to do particularly as you need to make it as kind of sim i don't want to say farmers are simple but you need to keep it simple you need to you know well, I, make I sure that I, they can sign up to it and do it i think the word i would use is convincing in the sense that if you mm. and I, I know farmers not anybody have long-term uh cycles uh that you know the argument to shift has got to be com compelling to, to justify it. Um, otherwise, as you say, it's going to look like risk and risk is never a, a, a good uh, element to introduce. But I suppose I was 
thinking about this interesting dynamic that's going on because a lot of uh, uh, companies now are starting up thinking about ways of, you know, it, well, to put it another way, in our world, in the art world, we've begun to think about the aesthetics of landscape very differently. So things we thought were beautiful, but have turned out to be slightly environmentally challenging or, or actually damaging, have sort of shifted off the plate and we look at it with a slightly different lens. And I wondered whether farming and farmers were perhaps looking at their assets now in slightly different ways and that opportunities, which is the wonderful evolution that our, our species have, that great thing we all share in common is seeing opportunities come up that weren't there before. I wondered whether these sort of moments were making people think, well, actually I've got something in that dead bit of land that really could be of value, either to lock in carbon or to hold back water, you know, or there's a new way of rotating crops. And so it's a really, uh, yeah, sorry, you want to know. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great point, and and you're basically right. I think um, there are opportunities coming down the line which maybe weren't really there before, particularly relating to climate change and, and carbon. Um, actually, the NFU we've we've now got a commitment to try and get farming in the UK to net zero by 2040, um, and that's pretty ambitious. Um, and there's going to be a few different aspects to achieving that, but that is certainly a sort of quite a new aspect to to and, and there are opportunities that farmers are looking at but actually a lot of this firstly you know there's nothing new under the sun it's quite interesting that a lot of the a lot of the techniques and approaches that farmers are talking about now um you know minimal till um you know less less plowing for example generally yeah. uh, cover crops um uh, grazing you know mixed more removing moving back to mixed farming in many ways actually yeah um you know that was all you know that's how it used to it used, to, used sort of, to be it, it yeah. used to be and so there's a lot of it's quite you know it's rediscovering things but trying to rediscover them in a way that that can be efficient and that's the important thing i think it's now it's about efficiency and you know we often talk about productivity and people don't like that it sounds like you're just saying we've got to produce more food just kind of keep producing it's not it's about efficiency so it's getting more outputs from less inputs producing more with, with with less impact and i think yeah farmers do sort of respond to the signals they're given both by the market and by by government and i think it would be fair to say that after the war you know and for a few decades after that mm. generally the type of farming that we pursued in the uk was focused just on production and its environmental impact wasn't wasn't great but that's because we were very nervous about what had happened and we needed to produce food and 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 they did the job they did the job they were asked but i do think actually in the last 20 years or so things have changed quite significantly a lot of people denigrate the, the cap common agricultural policy you know it's very lazy i hear a lot of a lot of uh, kind of comments from politicians and other oh the awful cap which was awful we're going to get rid of that and we've got this lovely new shiny system first i think they should be very careful about that because experience shows the new shiny system might not be quite as shiny and uh, uh, work quite as well as they as they hope but secondly the cap certainly had bad aspects but it, it, it had good aspects as well and one of those were environmental schemes it introduced going back a while now so most farmers in the uk um will have been involved in some sort of environmental stewardship scheme funded by the cap over the last 10, 20 years. And even the, the most basic schemes, which had huge amounts of, of sign up, you know, are, are where farmers will have put in field margins around all of their fields. They would have taken out 
kind of difficult field corners um, because beforehand they just plowed it up and planted it, whatever. But actually they looked at it and thought, it's not that productive, that bit of the field. It's not that useful. I'll take it out, you know, go over to a grass lay or to a wildflower meadow, whatever it might be, planting wild bird seed mixes, doing all sorts of fairly simple things. And, um, you know, looking at their farm with a kind of dual lens. So seeing, yes, how do I farm it, produce food from it, but also which bits of it can I turn over to the environment and do better stuff uh, for the environment? through it. Now, we can have lots of conversations and there are lots of debates out there about how effective some of that has been and what the results have been. And, you know, some some results very positive, others maybe less so. But I think that misses a really important aspect, which is it's changed behaviour of farmers. I think your farmer now and your sort of maybe younger generation farmer thinks about farming, as I said, with that dual kind of lens in terms of its environmental impact and what they can do for the environment, as well as simply producing food, maybe in a way that previous generations didn't because they weren't actually encouraged to. So I don't think we're now in a position of some massive kind of overhaul or revolution in the way farmers are looking at their farms. I think it's an evolution. I think it's you know actually the opportunity just to kind of move to the next level particularly with with kind of climate change challenges that's that sounds like a farmer talking never ever i heard one uh, uh <laughs> evolution the word revolution would turn would turn everyone up but <laughs> equally um i i think you know if you do take that 20 20 year um time frame and you're right it's interesting things like the environment were kind of loosely on our agenda they're probably in a sort of to-do list somewhere around you know kind of three or four inches further down it must get around to focusing on the environment i think you know, we're now in a common form. One of the reasons why we're together on these sort of talks is because we're sort of thrashing out what the future might need to be in a more, almost in a more radical sense, really, to make um, changes. Because I think the sort of sense of urgency has probably ramped up a bit. And we've seen it in the, you know, we've seen it in climate and, and you know, that has a very real effect on, on livelihoods uh, as well. So it's sort of, I suppose, given the sort of, platform we have tonight I wondered if you were there with a, uh, a wand and could really instruct everybody and say right tomorrow guys you're all doing this um, where you would be steering people to make radical change yeah it's no I mean not at all no I, I don't think that's right I mean I, I think look, I mean it's to, to a degree it's it's words I mean radical change for some might just be evolution for others and I think I mean I'd be nervous because farming does move on you know time, longish yeah. time, time yeah. scales yeah, um and even if you for example you 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 want to go into conversion and turn your farm from a conventional farm into an organic farm you know that is a process of a few years if you decide to move your farm from you know conventional what we've been doing over previous years to a kind of min till or even no till system where you're not uh, uh plowing up the land um you know that that is going to take a few years to bed in if you start getting a return for that and that's a difficult economic uh, equation to face you've got to decide that you you can weather that that transition in in all of those situations um so so kind of radical changes is is a alarming but the 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 motive for change i think is absolutely there so and i think it's already happening as i say the yeah i would say the the way that a lot of farmers are farming even now today 
looks quite different from how it looked even 10 years ago, mm. let alone 20 or 30 years ago. And most of the farms I speak to, you know, they are looking at all of these, all of these options. Uh, you know, actually, they don't anymore look at the way of, right, I've got 500 acres, how do I farm every single last, you know, square centimetre of, of that and, and, and crop it and get something, get something off it. They're actually thinking more long term, more holistically. Yeah, actually, maybe I will put over those fields to, to you know, uh, green cover over the winter, or, or you know, take it out of production, or graze it, or whatever. Just you know, put a grazing into the rotation. All sorts of, all sorts of things. All of which has a benefit. You know, that'll in, that'll reinstall um, uh, soil health. Uh, it'll you know, th these are. These are things which are doable, but there are there are some other. Just to quickly say, they're actually a really important part of this, and I, something which I think is quite tricky is that research and development and technology are part of this solution. Lots of these new ways of doing things have come about because we've researched them, we've looked at them, and we've decided actually, uh, you know, there are different ways of, of doing things, but they require science quite often. Um, indeed there might be some some technologies we feel deeply uncomfortable about not necessarily me but some feel deeply uncomfortable about which might present which might have some of the opportunities we need to think honestly about so we talk about gene editing for example in plant breeding it's yeah. not quite gm the old sense the kind of frankenfood stuff but it is uh you know editing the genes of plant varieties to yeah. and and many people feel uncomfortable with that but you could find doing that you get plant varieties which are much more resilient to water stress much more resilient to disease so they require less pesticides for example um which may even require less fertilizer these sorts of sorts of things i mean that could be quite radical you could get those plant plant varieties bred and and mar on market within a, a few years yeah that could yeah. be quite radical but are we kind of ready to have that sort of discussion you know are people willing to to sort of see the, the the benefits that technology brought into farming and people don't necessarily like the idea of farming technology kind of meeting but you know but maybe that's interesting time to pick up that voice and i think you're 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 really right to i um i want to just go, go back and acknowledge one thing which i always think is kind of never said enough which is really that so often farmers if you, ever, you know if you want to really understand the landscape ask the farmer because they spend more time looking at it than anybody else so I always wary about kind of top-down policy um you know coming in because they, there's um people there but it, it to continue on this track of radicalism uh or you know sort of change uh, um sort of you know in quick step it's interesting because now probably more than ever because of this covid period we we have sort of fallen back in love with science because we sort of mm -hmm. dropped it really haven't we i think uh in favor of other methodologies but now we trust it again and and i wonder whether that might have an impact on on the kind of progress of farming as we do face these realities. Um, and so it might be a good time to sort of, you know, merge those two um, languages again. Yeah, it's an interesting point actually. And, and, and it's particularly interesting because I think nearly all the vaccines which are, which are in development or have uh, now on market have all been uh, developed through gene editing. So we are, yeah, absolutely. So uh, we are as a, as a society benefiting hugely from it in that sense. I'm not sure. I, I, I'm sort of skeptical about um, whether there'll be a sudden shift in in kind of attitudes towards science. I do think there is 
greater acceptance, thankfully, of expertise um, than maybe there has been recently. And I think that is important. And maybe what, what, what will happen, which is, again, will be important, is people just sort of not leak to conclusions. And actually, where there is where there are people making scientific arguments and justifications for certain things to to listen uh, and to and to see but um you know i think as uh, uh you know people it's a tricky it's a tricky one because food is so important this is the other thing you know, our environment we see it as being natural and i can go on for a long time about what we mean by natural or, or not natural i think that's a problem actually um but you know people people have an idea of you know that's the environment it's natural and food is something we put in our own bodies it's something we eat and so there is always going to be a challenge i think about the role of technology and science when it comes to both our environment and food but the one thing as a race as a, as a species we have been absolutely incredible at the reason why we're here is because we innovate we don't always get it right. In fact, the human, you know, the story of humanity, the story of our progress has essentially been extraordinary innovation and occasionally going down wrong avenues and learning from that and then reversing and going up the next one and keeping to innovate and to overcome the challenges that we, we have faced through innovation and generally through science and technology. So I am really kind of nervous about you know sort of total approaches which which reject kind of technology and think we should sort of revert to something else it's not to say we won't make mistakes because that is just what what happens in fact you can't proceed without 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 mistakes but you've got to make sure those are as nimble as possible and that you you correct them as quickly as possible but we do need to to proceed and so i do think it's a really interesting debate and question the the role of of, of science and technology in in all of this because it, it can provide solutions as i say if you want to use less pesticides then let's think about how we have plant varieties which are more resistant to resistant to diseases and so need less pesticides it's a i, I think it's a it's a it'd be interesting to see which way that develops um and i wondered if i uh, would could steer us towards a um it's such a good point to talk about things getting wrong um uh isabella tree who was here uh, two weeks ago, we were talking about um, food production, uh, obviously, uh, and land management. But actually, the point which I think is relevant to this moment is just to track back onto that question of food of food waste, uh, which is probably one of the um, and you know as a, um, a a group, the body you must see it more clearly than anybody else where that waste lies, because that's an easy fix. I mean, if you use the phrase low hanging fruit. Um, you know, those are the ones which seem to be going to waste at the moment if it's not being used. Where, where, where should we focus on that, in your view? Yeah, I mean, it does sort of feel that it's it's a sort of low hanging fruit, but I think it's it sort of proves itself to be more difficult than 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 we realise. Mm. Um, I mean, I think a lot of it starts at home, actually, and I think we're all, I'm certainly guilty of it. I'm sure lots of us are. Where actually we just buy too much food. We 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 you know and and that then is a pull on uh, the retailers and the shops they provided in the way there's an there's an aspect of that about waste which often gets overlooked which is our pickiness for how we want our food presented in the shops and we want everything round and perfect and the right color mm. means that the retailers are very picky with farmers and so actually there's a lot of waste which happens before it even gets into the into the into the shops uh, you know stuff that just doesn't meet spec basically yeah. 
um, you know, and now you've you have got a little bit of movement around sort of wonky veg and things like that, um, which yeah. is which is good, but it's pretty it's pretty minimal. I mean, I do I do have to say the retailers have a lot of responsibility for yeah. sorting this out to give them their due. They are aware of that, and there are lots of sort of in, initiatives going on, but ultimately, still, they are hugely competitive they fight like tigers against each other to undercut each other and yeah. to win market share and to give consumers nice shiny stuff at the lowest possible price and that's basically yeah. what it always comes back to and that ultimately i'm afraid means waste and that is where a lot of the waste in the system basically is so this is because this is an interesting because this you know goes back to my point earlier about aesthetics in the sense of kind of you know, we're sort of trained to like our carrots this big and yeah. that great and the rest of it and orange uh and that's just our head um your mouth will tell you something very different yeah. um and so you know shifting people's um uh, kind of comfortableness if you like uh embracing oddity embracing the unkempt and rest mm. of it, um sort of or i suppose unhooking from perfection uh would be a way to um do that and i it's interesting really the way that you know for reasons that you will understand better than me that you are such you are sitting in such a lockchain with the with the you know the big retailers because every other industry so far if the internet's done nothing for us it's put us all directly in touch with the manufacturers and the makers mm. and the middleman is the guy who's been kicked into long grass um to carry on the analogy um yeah um i think i mean we've got in we've got quite a not quite unique, but a but a very distinctive um, retail sector in the UK. Very competitive, some big players, um, hugely sophisticated. Actually, um, the way that the, the the food retail system works in the UK. I mean, you just think about how quickly stuff is shifted around the country onto shop shelves. The range of choice that we have as consumers, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and as I said much earlier on, the prices that we pay for it, which are pretty pretty good um and actually it's that convenience which they've they've let they've leapt upon so you're i, th I think that you know the, the tricky thing is is to sort of take a step back and and view the uk through the eyes of all 65 million people who live here and shop here uh no there's a vast range of of different behaviors but if I'm being straight with you, Johnny, you and I probably are not um, uh, uh, typical of, of of many of of many of those. Um, and you know, the shopping behaviour it has changed a little bit in recent years. It's obviously certainly changed a bit over the last um, over the last year. But generally, people still like convenience, um, and they can go to the supermarkets and get pretty much everything they need for um you know for the week in fact often now one of the one of the shifts there has been is people less shop for you know go and do a weekly shop and they shop two or three times a week and just go and pick up you know the sort of stuff they need fresh for for you know one or two one or two days yeah. but it's still there the supermarkets have taken these positions there are obviously um you know people coming in and challenging them the discounters are aldi and lidl uh some interesting guys doing direct to, to doorstep um uh, selling which you know will many of people are called probably know but 
that's you know it's a small it's a small slice of the cake. It, it is it is a small slice, and you're and you're right. And you know you're you're also right to to say well you know gosh you know some people are, would be more uh, willing and able to explore it. Um, but they are, I mean they are they are valid. I mean it's a big part of our sort of uh, area here is these local local produced farm you know milk stocks where you can literally yeah. go to bottles and fill it up. I mean. I don't see why that isn't something that could be rolled out to any part of the country or, or you know, direct selling in that way. They seem to be a huge success um, and people do pay more, more for it. Um, so a lot of the questions are coming through here, which I should pick up on, are very much along these lines. It's like, you know, if A, if it was more expensive, wouldn't we waste less? It's a fair point. And then, you know, um, yeah, if it's, too, it's too, if it's too cheap, um, if you've added it more, you wouldn't throw it away. But I think so, but that, you know, perhaps reflects our demographic, uh, but nonetheless, the point is valid, really, isn't it? Is that I think someone in that middle ground, perhaps who's you know either the inventive farmer or someone who's work, working with the farmer, could do more to break the cycle. I suppose maybe. I, I think it's a sort of perfect world which is going to be difficult to achieve. Mm -hmm. This is and this is why I think actually policy is so important here, government approach to this, because if the market won't sort it out, and, and it's, as I say, I, 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 and I agree with this, and I've had so many people say, you know, if we could only get people to pay more, that, that would be, you know, one of the one of the solutions. How do you get people to pay more? I know, how do you convince the single mum in our housing estate in Liverpool, with seven kids, that she should be paying more when she can barely probably get by on what she's uh, what she's got um you know i i and i i love your example about the kind of milk hubs and actually sort of local food hubs generally i think are a really interesting idea and great personally i think i think they're they're fantastic but how do you provide one of those for 10 million people in london you know the 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 supermarkets like them or not actually you know they exist for a reason because they've actually streamlined and sophisticated the process of getting food, not just from farms in the UK, but from all over the world, onto people's high streets and actually onto the, you know, into the van, into their, onto their doorstep, incredibly effectively. And what what we what we're sort of seeing as a solution here is to sort of persuade people to move away from that efficiency to make life a little bit harder for themselves. And a little bit more expensive. That's a pretty, a pretty hard sell. You know, we can try it, we can push away, but it's a hard sell. So, what's the alternative? Because I don't, you know, th this is it. It's not well, so therefore it's a busted flush. We're just going to have to 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 live with it. What what that I think needs to happen, as I say, is is how you work out the policy that means that farming across the UK is incentivized to be sustainable. Um, so that farmers can produce in a higher cost, more sustainable way and still provide the supermarkets and therefore the public with affordable food at the prices that they want. And how do you do that in a way that doesn't mean they've got competition coming in from overseas that wipes them, wipes them out? Well, you make sure your trade policy manages that. There are some very interesting, you want sort of radical ideas, some interesting radical ideas around that as well, for example, about carbon accounting and carbon border taxes. If we're going to encourage our farmers to go carbon neutral, if we're going to encourage them not just to use less carbon in their production, but also to capture carbon, then th they shouldn't be competing against food coming in that doesn't have to meet those requirements as, as well. And the way you do that is by taxing 
food at the border as it comes in, traded in, imports, yeah. if they are not meeting the same carbon requirements. Yeah. This is, in theory, a, a fantastic idea because it and then incentivizes them to do the same. The, the UK is essentially a global leader yeah. and, and showing the world how it's done and everybody is, is, is trading on a fair basis. Unfortunately, when, you, when we look at how you actually do this in practice, it's really quite tricky, not impossible, but it's quite tricky. You have to kind of find a way of carbon accounting, demonstrating how much carbon you're using, et cetera. But it's, you know, that's the sort of, you know, these are kind of radical yeah, radical yeah. and interesting ideas. That, that, and that do you think be... your members are ready for that sort of change? I think they, I, th I think, yes. I mean, because if you if you do that, and this is, this is really important and interesting, mm. actually, the the op there's an opportunity there for uk farmers which is look climate change is a massive challenge for the whole world at some point we've all got to wake up to that and everybody's got to start producing and consuming in a more sustainable way so why don't british farmers who've actually got a bit of natural advantage on some of this stuff you know as i say we can actually produce quite efficiently in a carbon friendly way we've got lots of great pasture land are, are the, the greenhouse gas emissions from UK livestock is about two and a half times less than the global average. You know, we've got some advantages there. So not only can you kind of be a pioneer and say that this is this is kind of how we should do it, but also if you're level the play, leveling the playing field, you can actually have a, a have a marketing advantage. You are producing this stuff, and people want it. People want to buy it, and so you are you're also selling it as well. So I think. 100 percent that they're up for it but we've got to kind of get out front that's the point actually activism. we need to sort of be moving in this direction now active environmentalism that's exactly the that's script. the one yeah <laughs> i think it's, and it's really interesting and I, I suspect you know uh it it's it had all the advantages and i certainly we're not short of any of the ingenuity either uh in the uk here and certainly not me and if you with your minds uh uh running it as well so nick thank you very very much um and um i um i was conscious that um in this conversation we've covered a, uh, some really um important points and it's interesting how we i sort of have tracked back onto that um question i suppose if, i suppose of farming carbon for want of a better phrase mm -hmm. um and um i think it's really Important. It's actually also really refreshing because we've talked a lot about sustaining wildlife. I think it's also been really useful to hear, you know, your points about sustaining farming as well and food provision and, uh, and the basic, uh, you know, core role of, of, of um, farmers, of farm, farmers' business. Um, it's really, it's it's been fantastic. Nick. Um, thank you very very much. And I'm I'm conscious also we've got a huge amount of people here who have um, asked. Um, about a little range of topic actually uh, um, but i think i want to i want to go on a very good one that uh, the, the the bruce here has, has asked actually which is excellent um uh it's uh the average age of farmer in the uk is 59. i take that on good knowledge i think i will say that's it um how is the industry going to, uh, to get uh, new talent in uh to drive the skills of creativity to respond to the revolution in, in technology so uh, the working assumption is that anyone old age is, is uh, an absolute technophobe, uh, and <laughs> uh, I take from that. But um, yeah, so young minds, uh, fresh ideas, and, and you know uh, the rest of it. Yeah, it, I mean it's it's a great question. It's it's one which which comes around a lot because farming's age profile is is old. Uh, I mean, as in older than 
other uh, sectors of of the economy. I can't remember what the the average. There is a figure which shows you know the average age of of farm business uh, people who run farm businesses with with others, and it is mm. uh, you know at one end of the spectrum. Um, but that's often because they're family farms as well. There'll often be others involved within the business. So I'm not. I think the, the figures get a bit skewed by that. It tends to be you know the parent who is who is the um, uh, the head of the business, and therefore that it's their age which gets attached to it. But um, it is it is a it is a challenge, um, and it's something which kind of comes around, as I said, a lot. I think even in the Agriculture Act debates last year in Parliament, there were lots of discussions about how you encourage new entrants into into farming, particularly because one of the ways it used to happen was through things like um, county council farm tenancies and those are being massively reduced when they're sort of selling off land which is a which is a great shame so you've got kind of these challenges how you get new entrants into farming um ultimately i think one of the one of the problems is is about how farms themselves and farm families deal with succession um and a lot of the issues arise because I mean, how do i kind of put this sensitively you know that uh, the, the 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 incumbent clings on a bit too too long and it's a really it doesn't exist in other sectors you know yeah. farming is a family business quite often so it does exist there and yeah. actually having the conversation and this is what you hear a lot you know actually having a conversation at some point where you know let's just you know make it uh, stereotype you know dad says to you know the, the eldest son um yeah it's time it's time i kind of you know <laughs> moved into the cottage down the road you, you take over it, it's it's not half as easy as people i think hope and think and often it never does happen and so then you then get a, a whole mess kind of to clear up uh, uh afterwards but there is quite a lot going on in this a lot of sort of the agricultural colleges and others are looking how you you um improve succession um and certainly how you kind of bring in discussions into it i think it might be we will see some some of this come to the fore in the next couple of years because one of the things that government is looking at as part of the this new policy reform it's going through which which i've spoken about um is the potential to provide farm businesses with a lump sum to -hmm. enable them to move out of change sort of thing yeah move out of and essentially it is it is seen it isn't framed as such but there is an element to that which might be about um succession about uh helping you know people who's kind of coming towards the end of their careers actually make the make the choice often they've just not really been you know quite able to do that from a financial perspective so the ability to maybe take a lump sum actually might provide the opportunity for them to do that either the next generation comes through or even you know, if it's a tenancy, the farm can go uh, to be offered out to somebody else, uh, or even it might be sold to a, to to a new entrant, depending. Mm. So I think that 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 is quite an interesting um, potential change uh, yeah. coming. It'll be a one-off moment, as it were, um, but it might um, just kind of uh, incentivize a little bit a little bit of change. But it is a tricky one. Lots of um, there's lots of in- initiatives around skills and education try and getting people into um, farming, into college, you know, into studying it at, 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 at college yeah. so that they can take up those careers uh, as well. But it's, uh, you know, there's no, I haven't got an answer. <laughs> no, I know, but those are good, those are good suggestions. And just out of interest, does the NFU engage actively in education? 
as yeah. well. Yeah, we, we do we do a couple of things. I mean, firstly, we, we engage actively with education at school level. So we provide quite a lot of materials for the curriculum, which is really important because there's a lot, there's lots of schools which are, they don't even touch on food and, and, and farming at all. They might have a little bit about environment, uh, you know, environmentalism, a little bit about uh, 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 the outdoors, nature, etc. Mm -hmm. But quite often nothing about where food comes from. And I think that's quite kind of worrying in, in, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, so we do have we do quite a lot of work to try and try and sort that out. But then at later stages, higher education, um, uh, absolutely, we you know work with with a number of the higher education institutions. The college, yeah, yeah. Um, they, you know, it's not easy for some of those uh, in in recent years, um, to be honest. But um, trying to get people through that route into farming is uh, uh, is important. It does it does seem to be? I mean, maybe that's a place where sort of investment. Because if you joined up radical thinking at that point, it would probably then transfer into the management yeah. and management subsequently. Um, yeah. Because I think there's sometimes there's a sort of there's a stewardship conversation going on, and then there's a sort of a evolution or sort of environment question going on, and the sort of two things seem to sort of somehow, for reasons probably of historical rather than the present and future, sit in two different camps. Which Absolutely. I mean, anecdotally, I often hear of farm businesses where, you know, the dad has been doing it in a certain way for a long time and the son will come into the business out of agricultural college, you, you know, not taking it over, but brought into uh, to assist, basically, you know, it might be a joint partnership or arrangement or, or even just something more informal. But he will come with, a, you know, a whole load of new ideas, which he's picked out of, out of agricultural college. A lot of those might be kicked away, <laughs> kicked away. <laughs> um, but you, I do, as I say, anecdotally, you actually, and, and so we started doing things differently. We looked at things in a different way. It's just, it's like any business, you know, let's, let's be honest. It's like any business. If you've been doing something for 25, 30 years, um, you know, you are, you do it in your way uh, and bringing in fresh blood and a fresh pair of eyes can be really important. Um, and actually, it can happen in a sort of almost a nicer way in farming because it's often that family it's often a family uh, arrangement where you can bring in the next next generation i think the challenge is what happens kind of five ten years after that in terms of succession and that's often a much more difficult kind of conversation no i think those those those, those really are but as you say and probably like any business frankly it's what it needs is the capital to re to reinvest and get its own yeah. ideas so we're very very interesting i think you know we're all very keenly focused on what the ELM is going to deliver and if it's you know the government's going to act in the way that it's talking about um, it should be a very exciting time and, and, and let's hope they don't draw short um, um, Nick thank you very very much 